If it is your first time here, and I know it is for a lot of you, welcome. Thank you so much for checking us out. If you're on vacation and you came to church on your vacation, that's great. Brownie points for you. I mean, listen, that's wonderful. God loves to see that. Um, as Adam alluded to, we are in the midst of our new series that we're calling The Big Ten, where for the next few weeks we are talking about the Ten Commandments, the greatest set of rules that the world has ever seen. A lot of folks have asked me, are you doing a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments? No, we are not. We don't have that kind of attention span at this church. So we're going we're gonna to do five weeks, kind of boil it down, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Last week, if you were with us or if you were not with us, we kind of did an introductory discussion to the giving of the Ten Commandments and sort of what went on those first few months leading up to where we we're going to be today. And the most important takeaway just because if you weren't here, I just want you to know this. The most important takeaway from last week's discussion is we learned that a relationship with God is not established by keeping his rules, which is important for us to know because there are a lot of people, and maybe you're one of them, and if you're here today and you think this way, I'm thrilled that you're here, but there are a lot of people who think that in order for God to love you, you've got to obey his rules. In order for God to accept you into his family, you need to obey his rules, and the better you obey his rules, the more he likes you, the more he likes you, the more he loves you, and the more he will bless you. Effectively, we believe that you can, or need to, I should say, perform your way into God's good graces, behave your way into God's good graces, or obey your way into God's good graces. But last week, what we learned and what we landed on is that a relationship is actually established with God based on trust. Our trust in him and our faith in him, namely Jesus Christ. So if you want to hear more about that, head to our website or wherever you get your podcasts, give it a listen, or you can go to our Facebook page and watch the video. They're always archived there. Today what I want to do is I want us to examine the first two commandments. And I'm just going to say this. These first two commandments are going to set you up to make the most important decision of your life outside of becoming a Christian. I mean, outside of saying yes to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, these first two commandments will tee you up, will set you up to make the most important decision you will ever make. And I would go so far as to say that if you don't make the decision that these first two commandments are sort of leading you to make, then the rest of the commandments really are kind of irrelevant. They almost don't matter. So with that in mind, let's jump in. Let's start at the very beginning where we were last week, just kind of get ourselves um, in a, the right frame of mind just to know where we were. So we're going to be in Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. Just to remind you, if you don't know the story, many of us don't, um, the Jewish, the Israelites had been freed out of Egypt. They were brought into the desert. They are now surrounding this gigantic mountain called Mount Sinai. And at the top of the mountain, is a guy named Moses, and he's speaking with God. And God is about to give Moses the Ten Commandments. And he spoke all these words to Moses. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We don't need to get into the whole story of what this means. We talked about this last week. But the Reader's Digest, God is saying, hey, we're a family now. And the fact that we are a family, that was established based on your active faith in me. When I asked you three months ago when you were in Egypt to slaughter a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on your doors, you did it. You had faith in me. Now we're a family. I am your God. You are my people. 
And now that you're in, now I'm going to give you my rules. And he gave Moses and us the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods beyond me. You shall have no other gods in addition to me. What God is saying here is, I want to be your one and only God. I don't want to be the most important God. I don't want to be the first of many gods. I want to be the only God in your entire life. Why would he have to say this to the Jewish people? Because for the last 400 years, like I mentioned, they were in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt to a culture that had many gods. The Egyptians had a ton of gods. In fact, most of the cultures at that time in the Middle East had many, many gods. And so for God to say this, that I want you as a nation to have one God alone, that was, well, that was unheard of. Nobody did that. For thousands of years to come, there would not be another nation that would only have one God. See, so what he's saying here is, I want you to depend on me for everything. Hey, instead of looking to multiple gods and multiple deities for your multiple needs, I want you to look only to me. Instead of having a God of agriculture, God of fertility, a God of rain, a God of war, a God of this, a God of that. I want to be your one-stop shop, God. Do you have an illness? Let me heal you. Are you having financial problems? Let me give you wisdom. Are you afraid? Let me hide you under my wing because I want to be your savior. I want to be your deliverer. I want to be your defender. I want to be your rescuer. I want to be your one and only because, newsflash, I am the one and only. See, what I think God is saying here is what's more important to me than seeing you just obey a bunch of rules is seeing you give me the recognition that I deserve. I want to see you recognize me for the God that I am. And I think in asking us to look to him to depend on him for everything, I think the implication of this is that if you do, in fact, recognize God for the God that he is, if you look to him and him alone, then everything else in your life will just fall into place. Jesus essentially says the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus says, look, I want you to seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. Then all of your other needs will be met as well. God wants and God deserves to be at the center of your life. He's saying in this, in this second commandment, if you can settle this one issue, that I am the Lord your God, and that you will have no other gods before me, then everything else will be taken care of. Putting God first is not just the first commandment. It is a starting point for a healthy and functioning relationship with your Heavenly Father. So about the second commandment? Let's turn our attention to that. There is a lot happening in the second commandment. Multifaceted, multi-parts. There's some shifting imagery in there. And as I studied the second commandment this week, it, it became clear that I could almost do a whole series on the second commandment. I'm not going to do that. But there's, there's just that much there that we could kind of dive into and gnaw on and bring into our own life. Because the second commandment raises a ton of questions. I mean, it raises questions about human nature, and how we try to understand God and how we try to relate to God. Second commandment raises some really 
I think, uncomfortable questions about a lot of our religious practices. And we're not going to get into that today either. But there are many things that I think Christians might be doing to aid themselves or supplement themselves when it comes to their worship of God. And the second commandment really forces us to wrestle around with one of the greatest gifts that God has given this world, and that is art. And we don't have time to get into this today either. But if this intrigues you, and it did me, wow, there is a lot to chew on and to figure out about when art, prelim, you know, preliminary like sort of religious art, if you will, when art pleases God and, and when that art crosses a particular line. So with that in mind, let's dive into the second commandment. Let's pull it apart. Let's see what's there. Second commandment, God says to Moses, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above. Kind of a hard pause there. Or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So when Moses heard this, he would have known exactly what this means. We might not. Just based on sort of how it's written here and how it's translated, it might not be that clear as to what this means, particularly for us. Let me give you the, the John Garippa translation. I think what God is saying here is don't make an idol that represents me. That's, that's, you can say all those words, boil it down to, don't make an idol that represents me. When it comes to your heavenly father, don't make a statue. When it comes to God the Father, don't make a monument. Don't form anything with your hands that represents me, God was saying to Moses. Now, this addressed something that was going to be difficult for the Israelites to grasp. Because for the last 400 years, as we discussed, they've lived in Egypt. A culture that had an idol for every god. I mean, you've seen them. I mean, this is, I mean, these are just a, a few of the Egyptian gods that we've seen, you know, back in our history books in high school. Every picture of a mummy, every tomb that you see, all inside the, you know, the, the pyramids, loaded with hieroglyphics, loaded with idols. There was paintings everywhere of the gods. There were statues everywhere of the gods. There were monuments everywhere all over Egypt. In fact, most cultures at that time would have had physical representations of their gods. One of the most famous gods in the Middle East at that time. And it's a god that figures prominently in the Old Testament. And before I say the name, if, if you've read the Old Testament, you're going to know the name that I say. But this god is named Baal. This is an actual idol of Baal. It is for sale. If you're interested, let me know. I, I've got the link at my house. But spoiler alert, the Israelites in the future they're going to have a problem with Baal. They're going to struggle with this God, Baal. And we're going to touch on that in our next series after the Big Ten. So the Israelites, the Jews, th this group of folks, they're well aware of idols. They've seen how these idols are used. They're well acquainted with it in, in sort of daily life and, and even religious practices. And God knows this. He's watched it. He has seen it. And he is going to Moses and he goes, let's nip this in the bud before it even starts. As we are kind of getting this relationship going, I just want you to know out of the gate, I don't want you involved in making any of this of me, just so you know. Now, here's the sad part. It's actually kind of funny, too, but it's really a sad commentary on humanity. So Moses is up there on the mountain with God. Now, I don't know how long he was up there, but he was up there for a while. Now, down below were all his buddies. All, there's two million Jews down there waiting for him to come back down 
And they start getting antsy. And they go to Aaron, who is Moses' right-hand man. They go, Aaron, look, here's the deal. We don't know what happened to that fellow Moses. That's how it's said in Scripture. We don't know what happened to that fellow Moses, but we've been talking, and we think it's best that we make an idol that we can worship. Aaron hears this and says, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And he, you can go read it for yourself. And so he goes, give me your jewelry, all right, and I'll, I'll melt it down, and I'll, I'll make the idol. Here it is, Exodus 32. While Moses is up there, then Aaron took the gold from their necklaces, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. <sighs> Look at this. This part is, is incredible. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was, in, it was three months ago God did this. Now they're pointing at a golden calf and saying it's this thing. It's astonishing. God is up there telling Moses, I don't want this going on. And before the ink is even dry on the second commandment, it is already happening at the bottom of the mountain. See, the reason that God gave them this second commandment is he knew. He knew this was going to be a problem for the Jews, and he knew it was going to be a problem for us as well. Because it is human nature to want an object to worship. And so in giving the Ten Commandments, God is saying, don't even try this. Don't even go near. Because look, even if you try to create an idol of me, whatever you create to represent me, I am so much bigger than that. Whatever you create, I am so much more majestic. I am so much more powerful. I am so much more glorious. So don't even try it. When you look at how the surrounding cultures used idols in their day-to-day -day life, and in their religious practices, I think what God was saying through this command is, don't look, don't try to make me manageable. Don't, don't think that you can make me into a statue and you can just carry me around with you wherever you want to go. Don't think that you can make me into a monument and place me in one location whereby you can be in my presence when you want to be, and when you don't want me knowing what you're doing, you can just walk away from that idol. I'm, I'm bigger than that. Don't, don't think you can do that. Don't try to compartmentalize me in your life. Don't try to keep me out of certain relationships. Don't try to keep me out of the certain places you might visit. Don't try to keep me out of certain activities that you might be engaging in. Don't relegate me to one hour on one day of the week. Don't try to make me into a genie in a lamp, where if you need something, you pull it out and you rub it, and I'm here for it, and you don't want me anymore. Away that lamp goes. Don't try to do that. It can't happen. This was an entirely new concept for the world. That there could be an unseen, an unseeable God that you could pray to and be in the presence of anywhere in the world. Unheard of. That there could be an unseen or unseeable God that you could bow down to and worship without the aid of an idol, without the aid of a statue, or any object at all. Now what's so amazing, I was thinking about it this week, 1,500 years, almost exactly, almost 1,500 years after God said, I don't want you creating a physical representation of me. 1,500 years after that, God would send us a physical representation of himself in the form of Jesus Christ. This unseen, unseeable God, now that Christ is with us, Paul says it like this, Christ is now the visible image of the invisible God. 
You read the gospel accounts of Jesus, he would say things like, look, if you want to see the Father, and I know you do, all you got to do is look at me. If you want to see the Father, you don't need to make an idol. You don't need to make a statue. You don't need to create some monument. You just have to look at me because the Father and I are one. God says, don't you dare. Don't you dare make an idol representing me. But then there's a little bit of a shift in the second commandment, away from making an idol of God to what I'll call idolatry in general. All right? And if you don't know what idolatry is, a good working definition for us is looking to anything or anyone other than God to meet your needs. Take a look. Sort of part two. God says, you shall not bow down to them, being other idols of other things, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, right? And he's now shifting our attention into, uh, away, away from himself to anything else that might be uh, a little G God, if you will, in our lives. See, what he's saying here by using this word jealous, and that's a weird word for us to hear, but what he's saying is I don't want anything competing with my place in your life. I don't want you to give credit to anything else. I don't want you to give glory to. I don't want you to give devotion to. I don't want to see you give time to anything or anyone when it is rightfully due to me. Like I said, when we hear this word jealous, it's like a strange word. We've got a lot of ideas of what a jealous person looks like, and we don't really think about God that way. But when in Scripture, when God is this, you know, called a jealous God, it's really more like zealous or passionate. And as Scripture unfolds, and as Jesus comes on the scene, and we can begin to learn, you know, while sitting at his feet, we see that what comes behind this rule is not a God who is insecure. It's not a God who is petty. It's not a God who just wants attention for attention's sake. No, no. We see a God who understands that our lives work better when he's at the center. When we base every decision in our life on God's will, when we invite God into our homes, into our families, into our marriages, when we invite God to be a part of our careers and a part of our finances, when every aspect of our life is rooted in and anchored in God, your life will be better. And you'll be better at life. And that's a promise. Because God knows this, because he loves you so much, and, and he has a plan for your life and a future for your life, he actually gives us a warning. He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now let's just stop for a second, because this is a lot to handle. This is, this is written very uncomfortably for us when we, hear, when we read about God punishing children. Because we think, wait a second, wait a second. If Jesus and God are one, this certainly doesn't look a lot like the Jesus that I've seen in the New Testament. What is going on here? Now, let me just tell you this. I spent more time this week on this verse than any other verses. Christina and I, we spent an hour going back and forth, looking at this and looking at other translations, studying what it means in spite of what the words actually say. According to theologians, this is not talking about 
generational cursing, although it looks like it is. This does not mean that a righteous child will be punished by God unfairly because of something mom or dad did, although it looks like that's what it is. Here's what I believe this means. And if I'm wrong, I pray that you forget what I'm about to say. But if I'm right, and I think I am, because it seems like most of the theologians are saying this, I pray that you never forget it. What God is getting at here in the second commandment is that if you remove God from the center of your life, there will be far-reaching consequences. The word punishment is used, but really it's, it's more like consequences as we understand it. I believe what God is saying here is that if you choose to live life as you see fit, if you choose to do life your way and you disregard my way, he would say, if you choose to compartmentalize me, if you choose to invite me into your life for one hour on a Sunday, but then you live the rest of your week as though I am not the Lord, your God, if you decide then I am not your one and only God, but you look to other little G-gods to meet your needs, listen when I say this, he would say, it won't just be you who suffers. Because your decision to remove me from my rightful place at the center of your life will not only negatively impact your life, but the lives of the people around you. And we know this. We've seen this. Speaking of the next generation, because he mentions it, it's if your children see you run to the bottle as opposed to running to God, if your children see you running to new relationship after new relationship, trying to find worth, and if your children see you worship the almighty dollar instead of the almighty, chances are, chances are, they will grow up and mimic your values. And they, just like you, will reap the same negative consequences from removing God from the center God is saying, don't do this. Don't let this happen to you. I'm warning you. It's not good. Don't let this happen. And then he wraps up the second commandment by giving us a promise. He goes, look, if you, however, keep me in the center of your life, if you let me be in the center of your life and you keep me in that rightful place, I show my love to thousands of generations of those who love me and obey my law. If you decide to make the decision to let God be the Lord of your life, if you bring him into every aspect of your life, if you submit fully to his will for your life, according to this scripture, you have the opportunity and the potential to positively impact your family for a thousand generations. People you will never meet might be blessed by your decision to say yes to God and what he wants for your life. As I said at the top of the message, the first two commandments really set us up to make the most important decision of our lives outside of our salvation. And it's this. What is going to be central in your life? What is going to reign supreme in your life? In other words, what's going to function as the God in your life? What is the one thing through which you will run all of your decisions. What's the one thing you'll value most? Now granted, we don't 
we don't really bow down to worship success. You don't really see anybody building shrines towards business. We don't sort of worship family. But if there is something in your life that is of such great importance that you organize your life around it, that you base all your decisions on it, and it's the predominant value in your life, listen to me when I tell you this. You may worship a little G-God. And when you worship a little G-God, when there is a little G-God in your life, your life becomes like a car that's out of alignment and the tires are out of balance. You're just always struggling to keep it in the lane. It's never a smooth ride and there's always an issue. And you find yourself saying things like, gosh, why is life so crazy? It is always something. Why can't I ever get a break? Real simple. You were not designed to put anything other than God in the center of your life. So what's practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it is your first time here at DHC, and I know it is for many of you, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and just know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So I'm going to give you a couple of questions or prompts, really, that I want you to think about this week, pray about this week, uh, and, and sort of marinate on this week. And first, I'm going to make an assumption. And you've heard the saying, it's always dangerous to make an assumption. But I'm going to make an assumption, and here it is. If I were to ask you, do you worship God? And I don't know your story, but if I were to ask you this question, I believe you could easily answer this question, yes or no. There's really no doubt whether you worship God or not. That's an easy one. We know that either you do or you don't. But what the first and second commandment challenge us to ask is do you worship only God? And that's where it gets tricky. That's where it gets sticky. That's where it becomes a difficult conversation. So I'm going to challenge you in prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. You, you can do this. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Show me in my life if I have looked to other things to meet my needs. If I have looked to other things other than God to find my worth. If I'm looking elsewhere to find security and significance other than my Heavenly Father, point that out in my life. Is there something in your life? How about this? Is there something in your life that continually, and that's an important word, continually distracts you from the things of God? Is there something in your life that prevents you from being generous towards God and other people? Is there something in your life that stops you from gathering as you are here today with your fellow believers to give God thanks and to worship Him? Does that thing or activity or behavior, you name it, whatever it is, have you found that that thing pulls you away from God or does it push you towards God? Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, to put a spotlight on anything or anyone that has perhaps usurped God's role in the center of your life. Next question. Have you compartmentalized God? Like a statue that you can just put away when you don't want to see it anymore and you no longer want it around, have you compartmentalized God in your life? Are there certain places in your life that you've just shut God out of? 
Are you engaged in particular activities that you want God to know nothing about? And so you've pushed it out. Are you involved in certain kind of relationships? And I don't know what those might be. Where you've just disregarded God's will about that kind of relationship. He warned us about this. There are consequences for shutting him out and doing life our way. Folks, I really believe God is giving us an opportunity today to smash the idols in our lives. I think he's giving us an opportunity to turn fully to him. But it is up to you to make that decision. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we can come together to study these first two commandments, Lord. Lord, outside of saying yes to your son, Jesus Christ, this is the most important decision that we can make to turn fully to you because you are the one and only God. And you demand and desire to be our one and only God. But Lord, as you knew and you warned about it, idols pop up in our lives. Little G gods make an appearance, and I pray that this week, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would put a spotlight on whatever might be in our life that is distracting us from you, that is detracting worship from you, credit from you, glory from you. Because when you are not our one and only, when you are not in the rightful place of our life, our lives just don't work. God, if anyone has felt that here this week, I pray, I pray that they would feel your conviction, that they would not be able to leave this room without saying, Lord, I am sorry. I have drifted. And I want to come back to you because you are my one and only God. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name.